Good morning. Good morning, Good morning everyone. If it's your first time here, my name is Pastor John, and I'm so glad that you've joined us here in worship today. I'm also thankful for those of you who are watching online. If you haven't been here, you should know that for the past few weeks, we've been going through the gospel according to Mark, the gospel of Mark, and the question we've been seeking to answer is this one on the screen, who is Jesus? We've been reading God's word and trying to see who Jesus is, not according to our preconceptions, but what the Bible says. The past two weeks, Pastor Tom was preaching. He spoke about how Jesus is our bridegroom, our husband, and also about how he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who can overcome our hard hearts. Now this week, though, we're going to change our focus a little bit. Instead of looking at that question, who is Jesus, we're instead really going to focus on the question, how did people respond to Jesus? When Jesus was preaching and healing, how did people respond to him? What was their reaction to his person and to his work? And what we'll find is that not everyone responded the same way. We're going to look at three unique reactions that people had to Jesus in our passage today, which is Mark chapter 3. We're reading from verse 7. We're looking at verse 7 through verse 35. We're going to see these three unique reactions, and we'll discover they're also the same way that people respond to Jesus even today. And so we should ask ourselves, which response do we have to Christ? Are we fans of Jesus? Are we foes of Jesus? Or are we a part of the family of Jesus Christ? So if you're not already there, please turn your Bible to the book of Mark chapter 3. Since it's a bit of a longer text for our time of reading God's Word, we're not going to read the whole thing right now, but I would like to read a portion of it. So turn to Mark 3, verses 7 through 35. If you want to use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 996. So for our reading time, we're just going to read the last couple verses, verses 31 through 35. So Mark 3, 31 through 35. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow along as I'm going to read our passage for today. Mark 3, 31 through 35. begins this way, and his, meaning Jesus's, mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Verse 33, Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray you would open our hearts and challenge our minds to think about how we respond to the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would move us from just being fans of his to being those who know him and have a relationship with him. I pray, God, that for those who may be foes of Jesus, they would be led to turn from sin and cling to him in saving faith. And God, if we claim to be a part of your family, then bring us to the point that we obey you, that we do what you have said in your word. 
Thank you, God, for this truth that you have given us. And even though we're thinking about our response, may our primary focus be on your son, Jesus. May seeing him, seeing what he does, challenge us to respond in a way that's appropriate, a way that honors him. So may we see him clearly today, and may you work in our hearts so that we may choose him, that we may live for him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at these three different reactions people had to Jesus. And the first one we're going to start with is some people reacted to Jesus by being his fans. They were fans of Jesus. And we should ask each of us, ask, am I just a fan of Jesus? And there's several verses we're going to look at throughout this part of Mark 3 that will talk about this. We're going to start in Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus is trying to get away from crowds of people. He heads toward the Sea of Galilee, the big body of water in that area, but he's followed by the crowds. Look at verses 7 and 8, Mark 3, 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. This passage gives us a list of territories, places where the Jews, God's people at this time, where they lived, and all of these people had heard about this man, Jesus Christ. They'd heard about his healing power, his fame spread, and so many are coming to see this new celebrity. And we've talked about before, as we've been looking at the gospel, that Jesus viewed his primary mission as not to draw a crowd, not to heal, but to preach God's good news. That's what he wants to do, but this crowd wants something else. They want to get close to him. They want to touch him. They want to be healed of every illness, disease, or affliction that they might have. Since the crowd's coming around him, Jesus actually has to ask his disciples, hey, can you have a boat ready so that we can move out into the water a little bit if they are crowding us too tightly? He talks about this in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Why did he need to do this? Because he had healed many. All who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Jesus was very popular. Lots of people are coming, and he doesn't want anyone to get hurt because there's this huge crowd of fans. This idea of people getting crushed together like that, it uh, unfortunately reminded me, of maybe you saw in the news a couple weeks ago, in South Korea, there was a Halloween party, and there were uh, over 150 people who actually died because they were in an alley packed too tightly together. They ran out of air. So that can happen even outside. A crowd together can hurt others. Jesus sees this, so he's trying to say, there's this many people, we need to take steps to keep people safe. So his fame is spreading from his healing, but his fame is also spreading when they see what happens to those who are oppressed or possessed by demons when he interacts with them. Look at verses 11 through 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. These unclean, impure spirits, meaning demons, they proclaim Jesus. They say, Jesus is the Son of God. They're trying to take some power away from him. But Jesus silences them so they won't confuse people about his identity. 
He doesn't want even more trouble, confusion among these great crowds. They expected a Messiah who would conquer, who would take over everything. And so Jesus is trying to avoid any more confusion. He doesn't seem to be particularly thrilled that there's these huge crowd of people who just want something from him. So he tries to tamp down on this, but it didn't seem to work because the crowds continue to come. We read later in chapter 3 that he goes to his kind of home base of Capernaum into a house, and he can't even eat in peace because there's so many people there. Look down at verse 20. He says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And then at the verse we read, verse 32 later, again he's in a house and there's a crowd sitting with, around him so that those outside can't even get to him. Now, we may wonder, wasn't this a good thing? People are hearing about Jesus, they're excited about him, but the text seems to be suggesting to us that these crowds, these fans of Jesus, missed the purpose of why he was there. They got excited about these miracles and they missed the person, Jesus. They missed the man and his message. They just wanted to impose on him. They wanted, oh, I need to touch him because I need this, I need this. And they didn't consider what he was saying, what he asked of them, how he asked for their hearts, their lives, a change in response. They didn't care that he was tired and hungry. They're knocking down the doors of the house trying to get closer to him. They wanted his blessings without wanting him. These crowds are like those we read about in the Gospel of John. Look at this. This is a, a, an interesting verse. It's one that, that really strikes me when I think about it. This is John 2, 23 and 24. Again, talking about Jesus, says, When he was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. They believed in his name. But what does that mean? Because the next verse said, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. They believed that he was great. They believed he could do great things, but Jesus says, they just want something from me. They don't want me. They're not interested in what I have to say. He did not trust in them. The truth we're seeing from that verse, from our passage, is that being a fan of Jesus is not good enough. We'll see later in our text that Jesus does not want fans. He wants family members, people of his household, those who do what he says. Another passage that talks about this is in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who says they love me, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who does what I say. So friends, please hear me. You can take the title of Christian. You can listen to every Christian song that there is. You can own every Christian t-shirt. You can buy every piece of cross-shaped jewelry. You can talk like somebody who's been in church their whole life. But you still could be rejected by Jesus Christ if you do not know him. In the same way, you can view faith about what you get. You approach Jesus for just the things you need. You uh, pray for Jesus to bring healing to your life, to bring healing to your friends and family members, those that you know, but not pray about anything else or approach him for anything else. Now, don't mishear me praying for health, praying for people you know. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with listening to a particular music or (laughs) shirt or jewelry. There's nothing wrong with those things, but 
those things do not determine who belongs to Jesus and who does not. And if that's all your relationship with Jesus is, these external things are asking Jesus for things, then your life has not been changed by him because you do not know him. You're just a fan of Jesus. You're not a part of his family. Maybe I, I can try to explain this a, a different way, uh, particularly focusing on that idea of a fan. So as many of you know, I am a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Uh, eight and O, but um, okay. So I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm a fan of the quarterback of the Eagles, Jalen Hurts. He, he's doing really well. But let me be clear. I don't know him. I haven't met the man. I, I don't know anything about him. And if the Eagles start to lose games, I'm going to start to complain about him and how he's hurting the team with his ability, because that's what Eagles fans do. But that, the point is, I don't know this man. And so whether a football team like the Eagles wins or lose, that may impact my mood, but it doesn't affect my character. It doesn't affect my destiny. I don't know the team. I don't know the people on it. I'm just a fan of this team. And so let me ask you, are you just a fan of Jesus? Do you like some of the things that he likes? You like the things Christian people seem to like? That's not the same as knowing him. That's what you need to do is come to know him. Are you just a fan of Jesus or is he something more to you? Well, let me challenge you to move from that fandom into a relationship with him, turning from sin and believing, trusting in him, knowing him, as a person. So you may be a fan of Jesus, but maybe you respond in a very different way to Jesus. Instead of liking those things from a distance like a fan, maybe you don't like what he has to say at all, or you don't like some of what he has to say, and you would call yourself, or Jesus would call you, a foe of his. Maybe you're a foe of Jesus. Foe. And we see several, it's really almost three different little mini-episodes of foes of Jesus in this chapter. First, there's a section, verses 13 through 19, which is a list of Jesus' 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. But the very last name in that list, chapter 3, verse 19, is an infamous one, Judas Iscariot. Verse 19 says one of them was Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Our foes may be those closest to us. And when that happens, that's disappointing, but it's an experience that Jesus can relate to. And it's interesting that right after his name is there, there's a long section, really almost from verse 20 through verse 32, talking about foes of Jesus, those opposed to his work. But what's shocking is this very first group that we read about who's opposed to Jesus, it is his own family members his own family members. It seems that at this point, his mother, his brothers, sisters, his half-siblings, they think that Jesus is crazy, that he's out of his mind. Look at verse 21. There's this crowd we read about in verse 20, and verse 21 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And that word seize is really strong there. They wanted to seize, the, the word implies they wanted to see him arrested, they wanted to force him to stop this healing, stop this preaching to the crowds. Now, it doesn't tell us why they felt this way. Maybe they thought he was bringing shame on their family through the radical things that he said. Maybe they're very sincere. They, they think he's lost his mind and they want him 
to be somewhere where he won't hurt others. Maybe that's what they're thinking about. But regardless, their action is contrary to God's will, his desire, and his purpose. Now, if we read elsewhere in the Bible, we find out that some of Jesus' family members did come to have faith in him. They became believers, followers of his. We read about that later, but in Mark's gospel, while Jesus was alive on earth before his crucifixion, they're presented as being opposed to him and opposed to his work. For example, John 7 says, not even his brothers believed in him. If we know God and if we follow Jesus, the truth is some people will think we are crazy and it may even be your own family or your own friends. Because after all, it doesn't make much sense to give up earthly happiness for a kingdom that is yet to come. So Jesus has this conflict with his family and it will pick up again later in the chapter. Uh, But in the middle, there's a controversy he's going to have with some other people. Uh, One pastor talks about, uh, Jason Myers, when I was studying, he says in Mark, there's a lot of what he calls Mark sandwiches. Mark sandwiches, where Mark starts a story, then he tells another story, then he comes back to the first one. So here we have a Mark sandwich. We've introduced to his family. We'll come back to his family, but let's talk about what happens here in the middle. In the middle, we meet the scribes. They're religious scholars from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. And they come to the region of Galilee and where Jesus is. And when they get there, they start continually saying, telling anyone who will listen, this Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan, the prince of demons. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And it's really almost sad how low they have to stoop. They don't deny his power that demons are being cast out. They just say it's, it's, he's only doing it because he serves Satan. Jesus does great things, but he's in the pocket of the devil. You don't want anything to do with him. They attribute his work to Satan. And unfortunately, this was a very common accusation in Jesus's ministry. For example, in John 10, we read about an instance where there was a division among the Jews because of the words Jesus said. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Well, the same thing's happening in this passage. And Jesus responds to that idea that he has a demon or is demonic by sharing two observations or illustrations. Our text calls them parables, two stories with a point. The first, he says, is that if I, Jesus, if I'm getting rid of demons, that means I'm attacking Satan's kingdom, not supporting it. Look what he says in verses 23 through 26. He called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He's making a very simple point. A divided kingdom, a divided country, a divided organization, a divided house, a divided family cannot endure for long. That's his first point. The second one he brings up in verse 27. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods 
unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. He's pointing out that in order for me to even cast out demons, I first have to bind Satan. I have to stop him from what he's doing. So how can I be serving him? It doesn't make sense. Instead of being loyal to Satan, Jesus is saying he's fulfilling God's word in the Old Testament, how God promised that he would rescue his people from the power of the enemy. Isaiah 49 speaks about this. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. The prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. I will contend with those who contend with you. And God says, I will save your children. Jesus is claiming this is the role I have, not serving the enemy. These exorcisms are happening not because of Satan's power, but because Jesus is stronger than Satan. And so by these scribes questioning what Jesus is doing, they're attacking his reputation. They're attacking the spiritual source of his power. And so Jesus strongly condemns their words. He says that all sins and blasphemies can be forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because that is an eternal sin, an eternal condemnation. It has results that last forever. Look at verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And he was saying this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This sin he's talking about is being modeled by these scribes who look at his work and say he has an unclean, impure spirit or demon. This is what's often known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's important to take a break here and talk about what exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes we have misconceptions about this. Jesus has some strong words here. He says, never has forgiveness about this. So it's important we understand this. As an example of a misconception of that, when I think this happened when I was in high school. It was the early days of kind of the internet and people posting videos online. And there was a movement among some... Uh, young adults, really, I think like some college students, where they would film themselves and post a video saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, trying to be provocative, as college students often are. The problem is that that's not really blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you've ever watched the TV show uh, The Office, that's one character thinks that declaring bankruptcy means he stands in the middle of the office and yells, I declare bankruptcy. That, that's not how you do that. And same way saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not this sin. So what is it? Well, I like this definition that scholar Danny Aiken has. The unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me focus on those highlighted words. It's to knowingly you know what you're doing. Willingly, you continue to do it. Persistently, you keep doing this. You attribute to Satan the works of God. It's a flagrant, willful, decisive judgment. Anything I see that looks like God is doing it, that's actually Satan. Jesus is satanic. So this is not something you can do by accident. You can't accidentally commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you're worried, did I commit the unpardonable sin? The very fact that you're worried about that conveys that no, you did not. 
This sin is closer to what Pastor Tom talked about last week, about hardening your heart. It's hardening your heart against God's work to the point that repentance is no longer possible. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this idea of this hardening, it's probably what the author had in mind in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately, there's that deliberate, persistent, willingly, after receiving knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And all this means this willful, persistent, it's not really something we can see from this side of eternity. I can't look at someone and say they obviously have committed the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can see, but in eternity, we will see those results when we see those who have been hardened and judged. This is the sin he is speaking about. His enemies are completely hardened against him. And he says it does not end well. That is you. And now we're at the other side of that Mark sandwich. We're back with his family again. His family returned to the scene. This time they're trying to talk some sense into him. Verses 31 and 32, his mother, his brothers came. They're standing outside. They sent to him. They called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. The crowd had to tell him, your mother, your brothers are outside seeking you. But look what Mark is doing with how he puts this story together there. He just talked about those who looked at God's work and said, no, that's that's not valid. In fact, it's not helping at all. And then he brings Jesus's family up. Because in this moment, they are also denying what the Holy Spirit is doing through their son and brother. Now, we know they didn't continue in this. They turned from it, so they didn't commit this ultimate blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They didn't continue in this sin. But in this moment, they are saying, Jesus, you are not doing God's work, and we need to stop you. Now, to to be clear with some of the things Jesus says here, God designed the family. The family we have has immense value. Uh, Jesus never ultimately abandons his family. We could read in the Gospel of John as he's on the cross, one of the very last things he does is make sure sure that his mother is provided for. But with that said, Jesus here pursues God's call first. He says, my loyalty first and foremost is to my spiritual family. And look at the words describing his biological family. I highlighted them for you. They are outside. They are outside the house. They are not sitting with Jesus. They are outside, away from him. At the moment, they are separated from him. They are opposed to his work. Now, culturally at that time, if your family says, hey, we need you to come here, you would drop everything and go. But Jesus says, no, my value is with this new family I have, this new family of believers in me. And if somebody's committed to something else, then they are opposed to me. If we're committed to even our own family, my family is what is most important, not what God says, then we're opposed to him as well. If we're committed to some other identity, our race, our our country, if that's what's most important to us, then we may also find ourselves opposed to Jesus and his new family. Because a family that's not centered on God and his purposes is a family that is working against God's will. So let me ask you, are you a foe of Jesus? Do you deny his work or you say that it's of no value or it's satanic? Or, or maybe in a way that makes more sense to us, do we value something more than him? 
Do we value something more than his family? Because if we do that, if we're not careful, we can find our heart hardened by sin. And that's the road to this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And remember, it doesn't end well. You can look back in our text at verses 11 and 12. When Jesus sends these unclean spirits away, they fall down before him. They immediately fall in defeat. You cannot beat Jesus Christ. But there's also good news in this part of our passage. Look at verse 28 again. Yes, I know he goes into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but look at what he says first. Truly I say to you, all sins can be forgiven. All sins will be forgiven. Yours can be too. That's why if you're a foe of Jesus, the call is to turn to him. To not stay a foe of Jesus, but turn away from that sin and rebellion, turn faith and trust in him. Yes, there's many things that vie for our attention and time. There's many things that we'd say, oh, that's more important than Jesus and what he's doing. Oh, we should turn away from that. The Bible word for that is repent, to turn and believe in him, the one who lived for you, the one who died so that you could know God. And this is the glory of his gospel, his good news. Forgiveness can be found in him, can be found in in Jesus Christ. And if you're here listening to this, then you have breath. And if you have breath in your lungs, then you are not too far gone. May you to turn to Jesus today, turn from sin and turn toward him in faith. I'd love to talk to you about that. Many people here would love to have a conversation with you. What does that look like? What does that mean? Turn to Jesus today. Because if you do, you'll find yourself part of the family of Jesus. The family of Jesus. Now, I do have to point out, if you're using the handout, the scripture reference part of this uh, was wrong. I, I typically use old ones and edit them to put together the new one. I left an old scripture reference there. So the correct references for point three are verses 13 through 18 and verses 33 through 35 for the family of Jesus. So in this last part of this chapter, these two sections, Jesus begins to form his new spiritual family. And we read in verses 13 through 18 that as God called his prophets from mountains in the Old Testament, so Jesus calls his first followers from a mountain. Look at verses 13 through 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, that he, they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Here Jesus is up on the mountain, and he, he chose those that he desired. He chose those he wanted to be a part of his new family. As Pastor Jason Meyer reflects on this, he says the ultimate explanation for anyone coming to Jesus as a disciple is not that we first desire him, but that he desires us. Jesus wants these men to be with him. He wants to be with us. He wants his people to be in his family. Here, he focuses on those who will be the leaders of this new family, his 12 appointed apostles. And our text says that he appointed them that they would first be with him, that they would spend time with him and learn about him, do life together. And he also called them that he might then send them out to preach and to do God's work. 
That's what that word apostle means. It means one who is sent out. And Jesus chose 12 of these men. He probably chose 12 because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was made up of 12 tribes, groups, families. And so as God chose these 12 tribes in the Old Testament to be his people, Jesus chooses 12 men to build his New Testament family. The list of them is in verses 16 through 18. It says that he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, and he gave them a nickname that means sons of thunder. Also, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot. These men came from very different backgrounds. They had different life experiences. They had different hometowns. They worked at different jobs. And this is what always stands out to me. They had very different politics. Yeah, they had different politics, different views of life. Look at two of the men listed here. I highlighted them for you. One at the bottom is Simon the Zealot and also Matthew. Now, a zealot would have been somebody who either was a part of or supported a rebel group, the nation of Israel, a group of really assassins who would do hits on political leaders at the time. They were anarchist, if you will. They wanted to tear down the empire that was ruling Israel and restore God's people to their reign. So that's Simon the Zealot. And then we have Matthew, who we read about is a tax collector. He works for the oppressive Roman government. That was his job. Someone like Simon would have been ordered to kill someone like Matthew. That's who they were before Jesus. But here in Christ, in this group, they are united in this new family of Jesus Christ. Those differences don't matter anymore. Oh, friends, God's kingdom is big enough to withstand our pithy earthly political differences. They do not matter in light of God's eternal kingdom because its citizens are chosen by Jesus. They're called to live for him. Jesus speaks to them in John 15 and says, you did not choose me, I chose you, I appointed you to do what? To go, bear fruit, live for me, that your fruit should abide and whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Oh, and that's the same call that we have today to be with Jesus and to be sent out by Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, we read about us, followers of God. What are we? We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why has he saved us? So that we may proclaim the excellencies, the glories of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So how, how do we do this? How do we follow this call? Well, we do it when we are with Jesus, when we spend time in his word and time in prayer. And then we are sent out when we extend his love through ministry, through sharing the gospel, the good news with others. As we sang in the song, loving to tell the story to others of Jesus and his love. That's what Jesus's family does, but who are they exactly? Well, that brings us back to where we started at the very beginning today. That passage 31 through 
35, but especially 33 through 35, this is the key to this whole chapter where Jesus identifies who his real family is. As he says in verse 33, he's been told his mother and brothers are outside. He says, who are my mother and brothers? He looked about at his, the implication is his disciples, his apostles sitting around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says his family is not defined by blood, not by background, but by a powerful relationship with him that overcomes any other kind of family. And this is wonderful news for us. This means that if we know Jesus, he considers us to be a part of his family. He considers us to be his siblings, the ones that he spends time with at holidays. He considers us to be a part of his family. And it's also an encouragement, especially if perhaps the rest of our biological family or, or friends do not know Jesus, oh, then this new family becomes that much more important. Our church family becomes so important there. As scholar Robert Stein puts it, in God's kingdom, one's true relatives are determined not by blood, but by a faith relationship. Jesus calls a family, and we are saved if we are a part of that family through faith. If we know Jesus, then we not only get Jesus, but we get a new family. And Jesus calls us his brothers, his sisters. We read this in Hebrews 2.11. It says, he who sanctifies, he who makes us holy, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, you and me, who believe in him, we all have one source. And that is why he, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus calls us brothers and and sisters. Again, that means our birth, where we're born, where we grow up, that does not make us a part of God's family. Our race, our ethnicity, our friends, our jobs, none of those make us a part of God's family. What is the sign that we are a part of the family of God? How can you see, oh yes, that person is a part of God's family? Well, Jesus said it is those who do his will. Doing the will of God shows that we are a part of his family. It's what we do if we're in this family. We obey him. That's what he said in verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. But we see this elsewhere in Scripture. It's not just a one-time thing. We see it in John 15. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Peter got that message. He writes in his letter that since Christ has suffered in the flesh, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Because if we've suffered in the flesh with Jesus, then we should cease from sin. We should stop sinning. We should live for the rest of the time that we're in this body, no longer for human passions. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for the will of God. Members of God's family, they don't live for themselves and what they want. They live for the will of God. Now, I may say that and you'd be like, okay, pastor, but what is the will of God? How can I figure out the will of God? I've got good news for you. You just have to look down into your hand right there. We find his will, his purpose here in his word. It's not a secret mystery we need to discover, but it is revealed to us in this book. His will, his purpose, his desire is that we would turn from sin, that we would place all our faith and trust in him for salvation. But scripture says his will and desire is more 
You can look at Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, this is the will of God. This is what God wants, your sanctification. And we may say, well, what does that word mean? It means your holiness. It means that you look like Jesus, that you live like him. That is the will of God. That is what he wants. Living in the will of God is living according to the instruction of this book. It's growing in holiness. Uh, again, to quote the song we read earlier, it's looking a, a little less like me, looking a little more like Jesus each and every day. Now, let me not confuse you. Uh, scholar Ken Hughes points out this obedience does not originate a relationship with God. We obey, it's not that we obey God to earn, oh, now I can know Jesus because I'm obeying him. No, only faith does that. But obedience is the sign of a relationship with God. It's the sign we can look and see. That person does what God says. Ah, they must know him. We are saved by God's amazing grace, which leads to an amazing change in our lives. But that's something we need to think about and ponder, because if we call ourselves a Christian, but we don't live according to what God says, then we're in a place of serious danger. Jesus says his family are those who do what he says. And if you deliberately don't do what he says, would Jesus describe you as a part of his family? If you persist in a hidden uh, secret sin that you cling to, I know this is wrong, but I need to do this. This is what I do. Would Jesus describe you as someone who does the will of God? I hope that is a convicting question because the truth is Jesus changes the hearts and the lives of those who know him. If we know Jesus, then we grow more and more. We look more and more like our Lord and Savior each and every day. We seek, we desire to grow in faith and obedience. We want to look like him. Maybe you hear that and you think, well, Ali, I, I've said I'm a Christian, but my life doesn't really look like that. Well, then let me extend an invitation to you. Become a part of the family of God. There is plenty of room in this family. So in this chapter, Mark 3, we're presented with three reactions that people have had to Jesus since he was here on earth until today. Which of those three words describes your response to Jesus? It's a choice that you have to make. Are you just a fan of Jesus? You like what he's doing, but, but nothing more? You like what he can do for you, but not necessarily him? Well, then tell you, you do not know your Savior, so come to know him. Are you a foe of Jesus? You're opposed to the things that Jesus does. Well, if you do not repent or turn, there will be eternal consequences. So turn to him, reject that sin, and believe and trust in him. Settle that today. Ask how. Talk to someone. Come to know him. Or are you part of the family of Jesus? Do you do His will? Do you live for Him? Well, then take this time to rejoice and to praise Him because He alone is worthy.